0: Welcome to Media in the Mix, the only podcast produced and hosted by the School of Communication at American University. Join us as we create a safe space to explore topics and communication at the intersection of social justice, tech, innovation, and pop culture. Welcome back to Media in the Mix. Today I'm joined by Aram and Rachel, a sibling duo with a novel coming out in August, correct? That's correct. Awesome. Aram, thank you so much for joining us. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. You both are in different... Right now, so I'm happy to get you both here together on the podcast. I heard this is your first podcast where you'll be talking about the book, so extremely honored. Thank you for uh, having it be me in the mix.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. And yeah, this is the world debut of R.A. Sin, author.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Wait, so tell us tell us about that a little bit. So Sibling Duo, R.A. Sin, how did that name come about? How did you come up with it? Is it kind of just the, the initials and you were like, let's make it sound like a full name? <laughs>
1: Well, to be fair, we kicked around a lot of crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. We talked about like maybe the, the the guy, we would name ourselves after the guy who mentored us when we were both in high school, oh, that's awesome. or we would take the names of our children and turn them into some kind of an anagram. Uh, but at the end of the day, Rach, do you want to explain why we came up with R.A. Sin?
2: Well, actually, I mean, it was Deborah's suggestion to you, so I think you should. <laughs>
1: Right. So we, we're, we know a lot of TV writers and a lot of writers in general. And mm-hmm. uh, our cousin's wife, Deb Kahn, who uh, her most recent show is The Diplomat yep. on Netflix. Yep, uh, We were at some family event and we mentioned we had a novel coming out. And she was like, oh, my God, your last name is Sinreich. You've got to use Sin as your last name. It's so cool. And we were like, it is?
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So it became R-A-Sin. It
1: became R for Rachel, A for Aram.
0: Sin. That's awesome, and uh, I mean, as we're on the uh, subject of you know sibling duos, can you tell us maybe for anybody that might want to go into business with a family member or do a project with a family member, can you explain maybe some of the challenges and then also the benefits that you guys had being siblings?
2: Well, I think the I'll speak to the benefit, and Aaron can speak to the challenges. <laughs> I think, um, not from a business angle, but from a creative angle, one of the benefits of doing a project with your sibling, hopefully, is mm-hmm. that you feel very secure in your love for each other. And that makes it possible to engage, and I think quite uh, <laughs> rigorous and critical approaches to whatever the creative project is, because you have the trust that you can say things like, this isn't working, we need to change this, I don't like this, and uh, you still love each other at the end of the, right. at the, end of the day, and hopefully at the end of the project.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, We do call bullshit on each other a lot. And I think it makes for a better book at the end of the day. Um, I'd say in terms of the downsides, uh, well, uh, you know, we can only promote to one family network, not two family networks. Mm -hmm. So we don't have quite the the marketing oomph that we would uh, otherwise. Um, And then, of course, you know, having a creative partnership that's also a family relationship means that everything is kind of more freighted with meaning and with... with, um, you know, kind of secondary and tertiary complexities. So fortunately, Rachel and I have, you know, a a long and and, uh, friendly history as siblings together. Um, Mm -hmm. But... You know, obviously, like we we both, like all artists, are working through our own personal psychological histories and traumas through fiction. Right. And to the extent that, um, you know, we live through those traumas together as children, uh, that makes the process of of working through it uh, in our art even more complex than it would be normally.
0: Wow. Yeah, there's a a lot of layers there, which I like and I can appreciate. Um, That's amazing. So are you both professors? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Do you mind just sharing what you teach in the classroom,
2: each of you? Well, I'm a historian. So I'm a historian primarily of sexuality, and I teach at the University of Victoria in British Columbia.
1: And I'm I'm the head of communication studies here at American University, Mm -hmm. and most of my work comes at the intersection of emerging technology, culture, and law.
0: Wow. And so— how do you both feel if at all that you can take these creative projects that you do maybe outside of the classroom and how does that benefit you inside the classroom? You know, even if it's something so different as a sci-fi novel versus media law or sexuality or whatever that may be. So is there any part of it that kind of aids in your
2: teaching in the classroom?
0: Oh, a hundred percent
2: definitely ahead, for Rich. me i mean i have a lot of interest in narrative and creative approaches to history and i mm-hmm. think that it plays out really well in the classroom the students uh, appreciate having you know sort of like narrative and creative potentials in their assignments or in the way i teach so i do a lot of teaching with uh, role-playing games i, oh, I assign cool. a lot of um kind of like writing and creative projects for the students alternative ways of communicating history that aren't your standard research paper. So I think like my engagement in. Creative endeavors outside of academic history writing end up benefiting the students. That's awesome. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think when you research technology, it's really hard to communicate to a, a general audience or even to students like okay, so Amazon wants to collect your handprint when you check out at uh, Whole Foods, what's wrong with that? Who yeah. cares? right? And so using narrative is a great way to kind of take these uh, abstract ideas about what could go wrong mm-hmm. and to, to concretize them in a way that students and everyday people can understand. That's very and cool. that kind of like, you know, super villainous mind frame, like what could go wrong, Is a great place to start a science fiction story, and so (laughs) they feed back into each other.
0: Right, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, that's awesome, and so that is a perfect um, segue into our next question. Which, as one being as I read, one being a uh, historian, the other a futurist, you kind of come together. How do you understand each other's worlds and kind of combine them to create this like time travel novel? You know.
1: Well, I think the 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 through line for both of us is the heart. You know, it's not so much about the technology and it's not so much about the kind of intermix of past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. It's really about the emotional through line, right? So our book, this book, A Second Chance for Yesterday, Mm -hmm. is all about um, the the process of the protagonist having to reinvestigate a past that she thought she'd left behind. Right. And having to deal emotionally with these things that she had kind of put beyond the horizon and thought, I'll never have to deal with this again. I'll never have to talk to this person again. I'll never have to relive this horrifying moment. And then all of a sudden she's headed in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And all that, all those assumptions turn out to be false. Right. And so um, I think whether you're talking about history or future, um, what really resonates is the way in which uh, you have to construct a sense of self mm-hmm. out of these disparate events of Uh, that take place in different time frames. And secondarily, you know, there's a romance Mm -hmm. subplot in this book. And the difficulties of being a human being stuck in your head, stuck in your own narrative, and having to find a a common place Mm -hmm. with somebody else, with somebody that you might love, despite the fact that you seem to occupy these separate bubbles, like there's a a core truth in that. And the time travel dimension just kind of, Brings that out in stark relief.
0: That's so cool. I love it. It sounds right up my alley, to be honest. (laughs) And it also kind of reminds me of the fact that you can't really escape what's going to be there. And it's like no matter what direction you're going in, it kind of represents itself in a way. That's a word. I don't know if that's a word. But it presents itself in a way kind of like unless you deal with it, you won't really escape it type of situation. That's exactly right. Um, That's very cool. I love that. Um, Anything else you'd like to share about the book itself while we're on the topic?
1: Well, I'll, I'll start things off. Uh, the book is full of Easter eggs. Okay. Like, because we, Rachel and I have so much shared culture mm-hmm. and shared history and so many cultural touchstones in common, Yeah. we are were, we were able to write in a kind of um, code okay. where the other person understands the kind of deeper ramifications of what we're saying without us having to spell it out to the reader. Wow. Okay. So there are a lot of little in-jokes and asides that, you know, you'd have to have grown up in New York City when we were growing up in to oh, get, okay. or you'd have to have experienced a certain kind of cultural moment to get. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, I don't think it takes away from the uh, from the reader's ability to enjoy the story. It. I think it creates a kind of like fractal depth to it that mm-hmm. you wouldn't find otherwise.
0: Yeah, and it, I feel like for you both personally, it's just an added layer that you get to share, which is very cool. Obviously what you're comfortable sharing, but is there was there just kind of a a rather a moment or an incident or an experience that kind of sparked you working together on this novel? Was it just kind of something you two picked up? Like, let's, let's try it out. Let's do this. I've always wanted to do it type of situation. Um, anything you could speak on in that sense?
2: Well, both Aram and I have been writing for a long time. And I think that we started creating narratives together as kids, um, you know, just putting on like, plays for, oh, yeah. you know, uh, suffering family members mm-hmm. as kids do and oh, yeah. um, reading the same books and seeing the same movies and watching the same TV shows and talking about all of these things. So, I mean, I think the novel is probably the outgrowth of, um, you know, nearly five decades. I haven't quite reached <laughs> at that point, nearly five <laughs> decades of a conversation and collaboration Um, and, uh, both Aram and I had been engaged in writing fiction separately before we decided to collaborate on something. And Mm -hmm. then I think we started a second chance for yesterday during the pandemic. And part of the inspiration was about, um, having that sense of connection, you know, in a, during a time when we were all so isolated. And so it was just so wonderful to, have this project together and to have something to talk about on Zoom during, um, you know, like the collaborative writing sessions we did mm-hmm. that wasn't just like our fear of you know, death and the <laughs> distraction of the world because of the pandemic. So right. long creative process, the inciting incident, I suspect was the pandemic, um, and then sustained by the pleasure that we found in the creative process. And I should also say that we have continued writing and we have other projects in um, in the pipeline that we hope we'll that's will be able to share with a uh, reading public in the future. That's yeah, awesome. we're
1: about, what, two and a half books in together at this point.
2: Wow, OK. Yeah.
1: And that's I'm awesome. very, very excited about the the book we're writing together right now. That's so it's cool. It's called The Future Thief. It's a, a fantasy novel. OK.
0: Can you give us any, any teaser for that or?
1: Uh, I know. The, the less <laughs> No The less said the Keep better. It.
2: Yeah. Keep yeah. it to yourself. I understand but, that. I understand um,
0: that.
1: What I'll say is everything Rachel said about uh having like a, a lifeline during the pandemic mm-hmm. is a hundred percent true. But on top of that, there's also as Rachel mentioned, she and I had both um we're both nonfiction authors, we've both written several uh, books as professors. Right. And we've both been dabbling in fiction but hadn't published anything. Okay. And I think it's one of those things where, like Rachel was saying before, where we know each other so well. Right. When I read Rachel's fiction, I thought, "Wow, this is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But secretly, like, I was like, well, here are the things I would rewrite if I was working on this. And when Rachel read mine, she probably felt the same way. Yeah. And so collaborating, we have this, like, ready-made voice Mm -hmm. that's the midpoint between, you know, um, her uh, writing style and my writing style. Right. And it kind of smooths out both of our idiosyncrasies and excesses in a way that I think makes the voice um, more coherent and right. more accessible to readers.
0: Gotcha. And I have a, um, a follow-up question related to you something you guys said about working on Zoom. So... How does that, although it's a pandemic, and even without, let's say, without a pandemic, you know that um, when two people are in di- two different places, what does that collaboration look like? And do you have any advice for that now that you kind of went through the same situation? of, Because um, I know we've, we've had a few alumni on who talk about script writing in different, you know, places, whether it be different countries or different continents. So anything you could speak of, um, any advice, rather, you have for anyone working on something collaboratively, creatively, but just in two different locations.
2: Well, luckily, we have all these digital tools now that really uh, do facilitate this sort of collaborative uh, work from a distance. And so, Aram and I have tried different uh, software programs, you know, different technologies. Um, We're using a program right now called Dabble Writer, but the Mm -hmm. program we used uh, to write A Second Chance for Yesterday is Scrivener. Um, For us, the process looked like um, trading back and forth on the writing, so um, just passing it back and forth, keeping an online conversation, uh, actually using Slack about what we were Mm. uh, planning for the book, and then um, going over the writing uh, collaboratively in uh, Zoom meetings, you know, every couple thousand words, reading it out loud and thinking about not just word choice, but uh, the character's motivations or um, what was happening in a given scene or where we wanted to take the narrative. I think um, the most critical thing for our collaboration that's made working at a distance uh, successful is we've given each other a lot of ownership over the project. So we made a decision early in the process not to make revisions using track changes, Mm. um, but just to give each other license to edit the text. (laughs) Um, uh, And I think that that was important, not just for streamlining the process, but just for giving us both a full sense of ownership over the whole text. And the end result is that even though um, most of the writing is done, Aram writes, I write, Aram writes, I write, Mm -hmm. by the end of the manuscript process, we end up with something that is such a um, mix of our two voices, because each of us have edited both separately and collaboratively every Mm -hmm. sentence in the book. So every sentence ends up having um, Mm -hmm. both of our voices in it. And the funny thing is that um, we both end up forgetting what exactly? Who's written what? Right, because it ends up so mixed together. Right. Um, and I know that, speaking for myself, as someone who's written a lot of books, um, as as odd as it is, you do tend to forget what you've written in your own book. So sometimes I've had readers and fans of my writing who've asked me questions about, you know, this or that or the other thing I've included in uh, one of my historical books, and I'm like. I know, I can't remember anymore. Did I say that or is that what happened? You know, you tell me. (laughs) You seem to be more familiar with this text than I am. So like, I know speaking as an individual that I tend to um, forget what I've written in Mm -hmm. the past, but it's very funny to have this collaborative book, collaborative writing process where I end up forgetting like what I came up with and what Aram came up with. Um, There's so much beauty to that, though. It's really wonderful because the book ends up feeling like its own independent living text somehow that I am attached to, but it's not me. It's like your children, you know, go off and become their own human beings. Yeah.
0: It's like you both took yourselves and created a new human being. That's kind of like taking this voice and and moving with it, which is awesome. Yeah,
1: Yeah. R.A. Sin is their own author and has their own style and their own interests, and and I love that.
0: That's so cool. And one quick thing, so I— just heard you say you would read the text out loud to each other. I know in in script writing, we always were taught like, read the dialogue out loud, because when you read it out loud, it'll sound a lot differently. Does that go for the same when you're writing a novel? Is it kind of that same idea of it's going to help you kind of hear something you wouldn't normally hear? Oh, totally.
1: There's stuff that looks fine on the page. Mm -hmm. And then when you try to read it out loud, you can't get it out of your mouth, right? And then there are also, so each of us, every writer has their own tics, mm-hmm. you know, certain terms of phrase you might use more frequently than you think you do. Yes. Certain words you keep going back to or metaphors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's easy for us to see that in other people, but not in ourselves. Right. So um, it's in a way, it really helps our partnership that when we read out loud, you know, Rachel can say, you see how you did that there? You did it the same as the other way. Why don't we yeah. change it this time? Yeah. And you know, if she were just kind of editing my work on the page, mm-hmm. I might like take umbrage at that yeah. and say, "Well, you know, that's the way I write." Right. But when you read it out loud, there's something so persuasive about hearing the poetry mm-hmm. of the of the language, and and hearing it when the language doesn't reach that level of poetry and right. needs to be massaged.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, another follow up to that. So obviously, you, you write this novel. Um, can you talk about what comes next once the novel is done in terms of the publishing process? So the reason why we started this podcast actually is because we love bringing on alumni or professors or staff or fa- or anyone really um, who can kind of teach our students a little something they may not know. And I know a lot of students who are thinking about going into that, um, you know, author authorship road have a lot of questions about what does that publishing process look like and specifically you know what are you seeking out in a publisher kind of that you know what we call today red flag green flag what are the red flags that mm-hmm. you try to look for and then what are some green flags that you try to look for as well where you say okay this could be a good pairing for us a good partnership whatever that may be and admittedly I, I don't know too much about it so i'm gonna learn from you all as well, well
1: first of all you're lucky to get your first novel published by anyone, okay. right? Like, Good if, to know. if like Skullduggery Press out of Akron, Ohio, with right. like three readers wanted yeah. to publish our novel, we would you say we go been for like, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, please take it. We got very lucky okay. that we had an agent who believed in gotcha. the okay. uh, in the manuscript and and sold it to a publisher who's you know a pretty major mm-hmm. um, science fiction publisher um, and has great uh, faith in the project and great marketing and and distribution power. Mm -hmm. But the best thing about working with them so far is that our our editor, uh, a woman named Amy Borsuk at uh, Rebellion, um, gave us such insightful feedback on our manuscript that we were able to go back even after they'd already bought it and do another round of revisions that made the book incalculably better. Wow, Okay. Like she reminded us that because she's a pro, and up until now we weren't, right. uh, that there are these emotional beats that okay. you need to um, check in with the reader and kind yeah. of remind them how the character is feeling mm-hmm. at intervals. It sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but somehow we'd managed to write an 85,000-word book yeah. without, without doing that enough. And so we went back through it and um, really kind of at crucial junctures in the narrative thought about, like, how is this character feeling how can we be plain about this? Like, let's not be coy. Let's not couch it in, you know, metaphors and similes. Let's just kind of tell the reader, like right. the character feels X, mm-hmm. right? And um, and I, I really think the book would not have connected as well with readers as it has already if we hadn't had that partnership with the editor. Right. So that every time I sell a book from now on, that's mm-hmm. what what I'll be looking for. is an editor who's willing to tell me, I love this book. Here's what I would love even more mm-hmm. if you could do that before we publish
0: it. Yeah, that's such a specific point, I love that. And Rachel, anything to
2: add to that? Uh, I second what is saying about uh, looking for an editor who will give you editorial feedback. It is Mm -hmm. hard to find because the publishing industry, people are overworked and overstretched, and there's not a lot of space for that feedback. That's always what I've looked for with my nonfiction manuscripts as Mm -hmm. well as with fiction. Um, because I am a big believer in the power of good editing to improve a text. Absolutely. Um, I do think there's a recent book that came out, and I I can't remember what the title was, but it's something like, you know, writing a history of failure. And I think that's not the right title. Something along those lines. Yeah. And um, what I would say to anybody who is trying to like uh, publish a book whatever the genre or publish anything whatever the genre is that it the the endeavor of being a writer just involves like constant failure and you have to make your peace with that and Mm -hmm. there might be some rare souls out there who just succeed in all their endeavors and off the first Um, you know, shot, but it's not me and it's not most of us. And so you, you know, you just have to develop a thick skin and be willing to fail at things and enjoy the creative process enough that you keep doing it regardless of, um, you know, your lack of success. And honestly, like this applies for like all sorts of published authors who are out there. They're just failing all the time. And- it's just yeah. a hard, hard creative endeavor, and it's a hard
0: business.
1: Yeah, I, I want to mention one more important dimension of our collaboration, mm-hmm. which is that we actually read a lot together.
0: Oh, interesting. So Rachel okay. and I,
1: you know, we're both avid readers, mm-hmm. like most writers of course, are. Yeah, and we don't read everything the same, but we will, on a like at least once a month, we'll read one of the same books. And we'll end up talking about it and say like sometimes like it's a popular book that we both end up hating. Yeah. Sometimes it's a kind of like hidden gem that we both end up loving. Sometimes we feel differently about it. But talking about other people's books together and being like, oh, I love how they did this. Mm -hmm. Or like it's, you know, it's something about the language isn't connecting with me. That becomes a touchstone for us when we're writing together, so it's we great. can be like, "Oh, remember that thing that author did? Let's yeah. steal that!" Like, it's let, like let's your, make that your work own vision
0: board almost through these yeah. books. Yeah, like a conceptual vision right. board. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And uh, just a, a question for anyone um, wondering: So, did you have an agent when you were writing nonfiction as well? Is the agent something you acquired when you went into the fiction
2: world? I I was working with an agent for an earlier fiction project, which my agent valiantly tried to sell. But um, I I had broken some genre rules in the <laughs> composition of the novel that, that um, I was unwilling to uh, to amend. Okay. So that novel didn't sell. But um, I already had an agent I had gotten from that project, and then she took us on. Okay, um, very good. Okay, that's
1: awesome. Um, none of my nonfiction books have ever had an agent. Wow,
2: okay. Like,
1: typically, unless you're like a superstar academic yeah. or kind of a, like a professional BS artist like mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell, you're not going to sell enough books to be worthwhile uh, for an agent to, to try to get their To be like, i going to pick up a nonfiction.
0: Right, okay, okay, gotcha.
2: That's, that's good to air. You know,
1: like I calls it like I sees it, <laughs> you know.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, I mean um, uh, academic presses are some of the last presses standing that will accept unagented submissions. Commercial presses will not accept unagented submissions except for like the very rare independent press. Some of them do, but okay. for the most part commercial uh publishers don't accept unagented submissions and if you send something in it'll uh you know disappear somewhere into the void. Wow. Um, okay. So you really you do have to have an agent to submit. But there are all sorts of interesting ways. It's it's hard to get an agent, but there are all these um, uh, interesting ways you can try. Uh, Back when I uh, used to participate in Twitter before it got purchased, um, I used to see people use the um, hashtag, like sometimes there'd be like a pitch hashtag, hashtag pitch Friday or something or a hashtag for a manuscript wish list, I think it was MSWL. And Mm -hmm. these were ways in which um, agents would communicate with unagented writers. So if there was one of these pitch events and like lots of writers without agents would, um, you know, put up like a two sentence pitch about their novel and use that hashtag. And so um, uh, that was actually really fun. And then there's all these um, websites I found useful when I was looking for an agent initially, like, query. There was like a great one. I can't remember what it's called now, like shark query. Yeah. Talking about, um, giving advice on like how to write a query letter and all the rest. Right. There's a lot of information out there that I found super useful as an aspiring uh, fiction writer. And
1: we also read a few books about it too, right? Like story genius. And and there are various books that kind of
2: Well, that's about, um, that's about structuring and I really recommend that book. I like it a lot. Yeah. i I mean I've found it useful so I yeah i I'm a eager uh consumer of advice about writing it's something I talk about with my students all the time I do get uh you know a lot of uh, like compliments from people about like my nonfiction prose like oh you're such a good writer I mean that sort of thing and um and which i it's not necessarily true but my oh, my response true. is like writing is something that you can continuously um you know keep trying to learn right like i keep reading writing guides i i read what writers have to say i read like george saunders writing about how to write i read um various uh like jack hart's guide to how to write creative non-fiction mm. uh ursula guin's a book about how to write science fiction, on and on. You know, I'm always out like it, it's a never uh, it's a never ending process learning how mm-hmm. to write. And um, so that's, that's great. I feel like when you love something,
0: people. it's like you always want to improve on it. And it's like when it's your yeah. passion project, it's like a forever passion project. I feel about film and well, all we live of that. In this it's...
1: weird society that has yeah. these ideas about art like you know, artists are these creative geniuses and their their projects right. are kind of born fully grown in their minds. Right. And therefore, whatever you put down on the page is like perfect as yep. it is. And like, that's all such nonsense. Right. Like writing is a, it's a it's a craft. You can that's, learn to yep. do it. You can learn to be better at it. Yep. Um, you can imitate the way that other people do it to get good at it yourself. It's, yep. it's much more like, I don't know, I'm not a sports person, but I'd imagine it's much more like playing sports than like, you know, this kind of mythical, you know, um, gift from the muses right. that, that people talk right. about.
0: Yeah, I completely agree actually. We uh, we go through a lot of that in our the film industry I feel like and it's just this constant reminder that like whether it's your first film or your 50th film you're probably going to go about it the same way and that you're going to go back and edit you're going to go back and make those notes. Constructive criticism is everywhere. Um, so that's great. That's awesome. And we do have five minutes left. Do you guys uh, are you willing to do a rapid fire? Hit us. Awesome. Okay, so um, is there a book that Sparked your love for storytelling, and it can be literally anything you've ever read.
2: Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
1: <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> That's a good one. I think that was my first one-shot book. Like I found it in in summer camp on my friend's bunk when I was eleven. Yeah, I, I didn't get up until I'd read the whole book.
0: That's awesome. Eric wonderful... and
2: I had a bunch of paperback. We had we shared rooms as kids because we grew up in New York City. Um, and so there was no room. And so there were paperbacks <laughs> that were just like on the floor of our room that I think we read over and over again. Hitchhikers was one of them. And also Dune. I think we had like a very well thumbed copy of Dune. I'm trying to think of what else was like on the floor. There was some Kirk kids.
1: Vonnegut, like Slaughterhouse-Five and Sirens of Titan. Slaughterhouse-Five.
2: Yeah, Aram read a lot of Stanislaw Lem and Kurt Vonnegut. I loved the Little House series as a kid. Oh, I yeah, read yeah. Laura Ingalls Wilder over and over and over again. I probably read Little House on the Prairie like, you know, 100 times as a child. Um, Dolores' Book points. of Greek Myths. Loved oh, them. yeah, that was
1: in regular rotation.
2: Uh, we, yeah. had the, I had, we had the, chi- the Lamb Child Shakespeare. Someone got us that, which I loved as a kid. Oh, too. Uh,
1: Sherlock Holmes. We read a lot of Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes. Red
2: of Chili was Phantom Toll Boot. that was one my uh, mother did not like, but because it was preachy. It. That's... <laughs> Susan Cooper, I loved
0: all the Susan Coopers. I was like a horror fanatic, so I was the kid checking out all the Goosebumps, you know. R.L. Like Stein. The... Yep, yep. Yeah, like <laughs> that was really too
2: old for R.L. Stein. <laughs> yeah,
1: our little that's brother was, was into that. Yeah. stuff. Yeah,
2: that's all. Our yeah, younger brother was.
0: We're... And then, your favorite genre for escapism?
1: Jane Austen.
2: That's if, I want to fully in,
1: if I want to fully inhabit like, like another universe,
2: I will read yeah. a, a, Jane a Jane Austen novel. novel yeah. Um, I, so I read a lot of genre fiction. I read a lot of everything. I do read romance for escapism. Uh, unfortunately, it interferes with my well-being because I can't fall asleep and I end up staying up till like three in the morning. So that is my uh, guilty secret. A lot of Love. sci-fi, some fantasy, literary fiction. Um, Speculative fiction. That's sort of where I see Aram and I um, uh, entering the field. I can well, yeah, see that. Yeah, we're, we're both, like uh, massive David Mitchell out, fans. Speculative okay. fiction.
1: Uh, if you know David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas and yeah, Bone yeah. Clocks, uh, we're both massive fans of uh, Ted Chang. Um, I mean, there's a, this is like a golden era we're living yeah. through right now of speculative fiction.
0: That's awesome. And then last question. A place you've traveled to that inspired your writing. Or a, a spot. A location. New York. Has well, New York inspired look, your look, writing? Look,
1: we, we grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. We okay. spent our whole misspent youths in Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. Like, that that's all you need. Yeah. You know.
0: I was going to say, that is like a great place to grow up in terms of just like, just being so culturally exposed to so many different you know yeah there's so many different people it's like a melting pot
1: yeah we could mine that for like centuries and never run out of good stuff yeah yeah
0: well aram and rachel thank you so much for coming on media in the mix you're our first authors
1: we are so honored and so thankful Uh, it's great to be on thank
0: Um, you very much for having us i can't wait to read the book to be honest thank you (laughs) i'm excited so congratulations And uh, we hope to see more from R.A. Sin in the future.
1: Oh, uh, you will. I promise. We
0: hope to provide more in the future. We hope to provide. Yeah, that's what it's about, right?
1: It's all in the works.
0: Thank you both so much.